SEC fans, welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast. Coming to you from the iHeartMedia studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida. 6.20 a.m., 95.3 FM. My name is John Christ. I'm the senior writer for Saturday Down South, and his name is Connor O'Gara, and he's the national columnist for Saturday Down South. You can follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC and him at CJ O'Gara. And Connor, we actually don't have a game to cover for the next few weeks. What in God's name are you going to do with yourself on Saturdays? I don't know. This is one of those what do I do with my hands type moments. I'm going to be sitting there on Saturday afternoon. I'm going to flip on CBS. I'm going to expect to hear the jingle, and I'm going to be like, wait, what? 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 what's this? this emptiness. Well, I don't even know what's on Saturday afternoons on CBS when there's not SEC football. Yeah, are you writing the live game column on Army-Navy and I'm doing the sidebar, or is it the other way around? I don't know. We'll, we'll get it figured out, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll definitely have that one covered pretty good. We will. We will. Airtight. But before we get to that, the SDS podcast is brought to you by Ticket City. While the regular season is sadly in the rearview mirror already, your holiday season is going to be chock full of bowl games. Nine of the 14 teams in the SEC are going bowling. Missouri plays Texas. Texas A&M plays Wake Forest. Kentucky plays Northwestern. Mississippi State gets Louisville. South Carolina gets Michigan. Auburn plays UCF. LSU gets Notre Dame in another bowl game. And of course, Georgia and Alabama are in the college football playoff The Bulldogs get Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl, while the Crimson Tide face Clemson again in the Sugar Bowl. We've been working with Ticket City for a long time. They are the experts in the business, having served over a million and a half customers. They've been the place to go for almost three decades now. Best of all, Ticket City is offering $20 off for all of our Saturday Down South readers and listeners. All you need to do is go to TicketCity.com and enter the discount code SDS20 at checkout, and you're going to get 20 bucks off the game of your choice. That's TicketCity.com, discount code SDS20. Get off the couch, go to the game, a bowl game no less. Visit Ticket City today. Connor, of course, we had to review what we saw at the brand new Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia, and Auburn. It was basically a complete flip of the script. I'm actually happy I got this one right. I had the Bulldogs winning the rematch. That was the case, 28-7. As I mentioned in the ad read, the Bulldogs are going to the college football playoff. Just give me your initial impressions of what went down in the ATL. You got it right with your bold initial prediction and I got wrong with my bold initial prediction but I'll, I'll, I'll say for the record as the week progressed I, I, I kind of went to your side with Georgia the more and more I heard and listened about what was going to be playing out in this game and we, we just kind of saw the fact that Auburn wasn't playing at Jordan-Hare this wasn't a game that Auburn came out particularly dominant um, in the way that it has last month of the season and a lot of that, of course, had to do with the fact that Carryon Johnson wasn't 100%. We saw that from the jump, that he was not his usual self. When he doesn't have that stiff arm going, he is not the same type of player. And his running style, he just needs to have everything working. He's not necessarily a guy who's going to be able to uh, dominate a game when he's at 75 80%, whatever he was at. 
And the Georgia defense is just too good to allow that to happen. And we saw just a complete and total dominant performance from Kirby Smart from Kirby Smart's unit, uh, a group that made tremendous adjustments in this one. And that was going to be the key going into this, was how was Georgia going to be able to make those adjustments really on both sides of the ball because offensively nothing they did worked last time. And the adjustments that Jim Chaney was able to make on that side of the ball too, just an impressive effort all around from Georgia. The fact that this team gets its first SEC championship in 12 years really says a lot about the season that that group has had just a total culmination of what this group has been able to put together, a body of work that's impressive when you really consider the fact that they had that big road non-conference game. And for it to culminate in an SEC championship says a lot about the direction of this program right now. Yeah, the prediction game is not something I particularly enjoy about our line of work, but I definitely had the crystal ball working this weekend. I had all those games picked correctly, and this is one, it just sort of unfolded the way I saw it happening. And Carryon Johnson was the biggest factor in this game. If he was 70 or 75 or 80%, we'll never truly know. A lot of players don't like to talk about injuries and the like. That just completely changed the face of this football game. I know that we have de-emphasized the running back position in football, especially in college football. You got seven or eight of them on the roster, and chances are if one gets hurt, throw another one in there and he can be pretty productive. That is not the case for Auburn. That is not the case for Gus Malzahn's system. No carry on Johnson was a big, big problem. Remember, Cameron Petway essentially hasn't gotten anything done this year, hasn't been healthy enough. It was a thin depth chart, and Johnson is just a special player. There's a reason why he was just recently announced by the AP as the SEC Offensive Player of the Year and well-deserved. He is a game-changer. The first time around against the Bulldogs, he ran for 167 yards. This past Saturday, only 44. And remember, the first game, he also caught, I believe, 66 yards worth of passes. He had one catch and run in particular that was a big, big play. He caught one ball for a minor gain, I believe, against the Dogs this past Saturday. So that completely changed the outcome, completely changed what Malzahn's offense can do. And you have to say so much about Georgia's defense as well. I mean, if we're talking about players of the year, how about Roquan Smith, the linebacker for UGA? I mean, he was just named the defensive player of the year in this conference, and that guy was absolutely everywhere, sideline to sideline. He's covering guys. He's rushing the passer. He's getting tackles behind the line of scrimmage. He's recovering fumbles. He was absolutely unbelievable, maybe the single best defensive performance I've seen from any player all season long. There was even the play where he like ran over the cameraman and the line judge. Where I mean, that's so you talk about sideline to sideline. That that dude was everywhere and. That's what Georgia needed. I mean, we said coming into this game, this defense has to take the momentum back. They have to be able to say, this is a neutral site. We are going to be our fast, usual selves, and we are going to impose our will on this team. And we're not going to have those big back-breaking plays where the secondary gets torched on the play action. And that's exactly what happened in this game. Jared Stidham was not able to get anything going in the deep passing game because Georgia, quite frankly, didn't really trust the run, and they knew that they could beat them straight up. They didn't have to necessarily send the house to get to Stidham, and this was just an all-around dominant effort defensively. The fact that Auburn was able to come out and score on that first drive and then just got nothing going, and we thought they were going to be able to get something going. I think it was on their, their third or fourth drive, whenever that was, and then you know Bellamy forces the fumble, and that was the turning point in the game. That was all she wrote from there. So if you're Georgia, you've got to be feeling good going into the playoff, knowing that you've got this defense rolling right now, 
the fact that you still have all those those healthy backs. Jake Fromm looked better than ever. This is a dangerous team. I mean, this is going to be an absolute tough out for for not only for Oklahoma, but if they can get past Oklahoma and potentially play Clemson or Alabama. I mean, what's to say Georgia can't win the whole thing? They absolutely can win the whole thing. I mean, what did they not put on display at Mercedes-Benz Stadium? They did just about everything. They threw it effectively when they wanted to. They ran it effectively when they needed to. Defending the pass, defending the run, they were pretty sound on special teams. This was a fantastic performance on the brightest stage they had played on all season long. I still can't get over just how much of a mirror image of the previous game on the Plains this was like. If you recall, Georgia went right down on its first possession, scored a touchdown at Jordan-Hare, and you're thinking, okay, Kirby Smart and his boys are ready to play. And from that moment on, it was all War Eagle. It really wasn't much of a contest. It was the same thing this past Saturday. Auburn scored right away. I think it was like a 12-play dry. Everything is working. Stidham is in complete control. And after that, nothing happened. Absolutely nothing happened. It was a complete flip of the script. And yes, it's easy to talk about the running game. And Jake Fromm is a true freshman. They all deserve their accolades. But I can't get over this Georgia defense. And you talked about being able to handle the defense with the front seven alone not having to worry about corners crashing the line of scrimmage or safeties creeping up into the box. They could play seven-on-seven football up front and control every gap. This was beautiful gap discipline on defense. Now, the X's and the O's of the game, I understand a lot more offensively than defensively, but I know enough about defensive football that the gap control and the discipline that this defense had for Georgia was borderline perfect. There was just nowhere for Carrion Johnson to go. We love his patient running style and all the Le'Veon Bell comparisons about how he gets the ball, he's patient at the line of scrimmage, finds a gap and explodes through it. There were no gaps. There was nowhere for him to go. It was assignment-perfect defensive football by Georgia. It absolutely was. And the, the aftermath of this game and what, what sort of unfolded with Auburn is, is interesting. Is Now you're sitting there and you're looking back on the season that was for Auburn and you realize – well, this team was 3-3 three and three away from Jordan-Hare. I mean, that's it. We're talking about a top-10 team here, a team that was, I mean, a team many thought would be in a college football playoff at this time last week. And, you know, they're 3-3 three and three away from home. So how are they going to perform on a neutral site against UCF, a UCF team that has plenty of question marks uh, of its own? And this will obviously be a great matchup in the Peach Bowl that we'll look forward to and we'll talk about more later. But the aftermath of this game I thought was really interesting that – the rumors about Gus Malzahn potentially going to Arkansas, of course, you know, they, they didn't really turn out to, to be, well, I, I mean, I guess they turned out to be true. The rumors did. But then, of course, you know, Auburn comes back and Auburn says, you know what, You're, we're not going to let you get away. You, you've done the things that we wanted you to do, which is compete for an SEC championship, beat Nick Saban for a second time. Uh, and put us in the position that we wanted to be in, but they weren't going to necessarily make that decision based solely on the SEC championship, which I found interesting. And it'll be, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what Auburn is able to do now that Malzahn has some some job security, now that he's going to be able to recruit his guys, knowing that he's going to be the coach of the future for this team, getting paid a reported $7 million a year, which is absurd, in my opinion, for a coach in this day and age. That's almost Jimbo Um, money. That is Jimbo money, yeah. That, I mean, your boy. Um, but for for that to to happen after the game that was, I think just says a lot about the direction Auburn thinks it can go with this program, and it thinks it can be there on a year in year out basis. So that's 
at the very least, I think that's progress, that Auburn is, is not necessarily at this point where it was going to base everything on, on Malzahn based on what happened in the SEC championship. I don't think that would have been fair, even though he was outcoached in this game. Um, interesting to look at what Auburn can become moving forward. A little bit of a tangent here, but do you think that the Arkansas noise had any effect on this game? Now, this is one of the flaws of college football. As much fun as it is, it's beautiful as sport it is, and we enjoy it so much, and the passion is unlike anything out there in this country. This is a terrible, terrible flaw in college football, and it's the way the coaching carousel works. It's not like this in the NFL. It's not like this at all in the NFL. You know, Bob McAdoo just lost his job with the New York Giants, got fired by the Mara family. There's a couple weeks left in the regular season for a Giants team going absolutely nowhere. But the Giants aren't trying to poach other NFL teams' coaches right now. They know that they're going to have their interim guy, and then after the season, that's when they'll get a new head coach and get prepped for the 2018 season. Unfortunately, in college football, it doesn't go that way because of the recruiting chip. And that's what makes this sport so unique. And you have to get your coach in place as soon as possible. And that's why we had the Jimbo Fisher situation at Texas A&M. And all of a sudden, you had this opening with Brett Bielema no longer there at Arkansas. The Hogs can't just sit back and wait until February to hire a coach. Gus Malzahn has ties to the state of Arkansas. He was a walk-on wide receiver for the Hogs back in the day. Of course, there's some sentimental attachment there. Of course, the Hogs are going to go all in and try to make that splashy hire. But they can't do it in January. They try to do it right away. The rumors coming out of Atlanta were insane. I saw somewhere on, uh, on Twitter that someone claimed that Malzahn had two bags in his locker at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. One, if he was going back to Auburn, and one, if he was going to go take the Fayetteville job, he was just going to grab and go after the press conference. Do I think that was the case? Of course I don't. But these are the types of things that happen in college football. It's unfair to the coaches. It's unfair to the players. Frankly, it's unfair to the viewing public. But that's the game we have. Long way of me asking, is there any way that maybe he was distracted a little bit about the noise coming out of Fayetteville? It could have, but I, I really thought that this was more of a game where when you face a team four weeks earlier and you have to come back and face them again in a neutral site, I think it's just about getting into your own head. We saw little instances in that game where it was almost like Auburn was overthinking it, where they you know, they faked the jump pass with on Johnson, the play that worked so effectively in that game a month ago, and then they, they did it again against Alabama, and it worked so effectively, and it was almost like, okay, we know Georgia has that on film, we know that Georgia practiced against that, but we're going to fake it this time, and then it didn't work. And so there were a few instances like that where I thought, you know, maybe Auburn just kind of overthought this thing and was more worried about what Georgia was going to do and react to their game plan than just setting a game plan and saying, this is what we're good at, and this is how we're going to roll it out. And that was the danger coming into this. And I think that maybe had more of a, a factor, and maybe Georgia just came in with that chip on its shoulder that it needed in this one than any rumors about a potential job. Because we don't want to you know, assume that a guy's focus was not where it needed to be at that given point. He had an entire staff that was working tirelessly throughout the week, knowing what was at stake for this one. So I don't want to necessarily chalk it up to just that. But it could have been in the back of his mind, and we don't know necessarily where he was at mentally uh, throughout the week. Did it? Was it the determining factor in this game? I don't think so. No, I don't think it was the determining factor either, but this is sort of the funkiness of a rematch, and they're rare in college football. 
And what do you do if you're the team that won the game? You know, Auburn beat Georgia handily. Do you just turn on the tape and say, okay, we did this well. We did that well. This didn't quite work, but we won 40 to 17. Let's just roll out the same game plan and do it again. Versus Georgia, you know, we, we didn't play well. We got beat on this side of the ball. We got beat on that side of the ball. This didn't work. This didn't work. We got to change this. And you know what? We couldn't defend this, so let's try something else. I think it's easier for Georgia to look at that film and say, we did not play well. We need a brand new plan of attack. Versus Auburn, maybe you get a little bit cute. I mean, I think you could have rolled out the same game plan and say, hey, they couldn't stop this. Let's just keep doing it. But I think you're right. They got a little too cute for their own good. Instead of just doing what they do well, they probably studied a little too hard and thought a little too hard about how Georgia was going to change its game plan. It's sort of like the baseball analogy I always worked was, you know, I was a hitter. I was never a pitcher. You know, I always claimed that the pitchers were never very smart because they always want to show off all their array of pitches when they get a guy in the batter's box, as opposed to this guy can't hit my fastball on the inner side of the plate. I'm just going to keep throwing it until he proves me wrong. If you got a guy who can't handle the inside fastball, why are you going to waste your time with sliders and changeups? Just you have something that works, go with it. And I think Auburn could have done that. You know, if you're running power and it's working and they can't stop it, keep running power. If you're running the read option and they can't stop it, keep running the read option. But yeah, the game plan was a little screwy from Auburn. It wasn't what we saw a couple of weeks prior on the planes. I think that was a factor. This is also one of the complaints that Tigers fans have had of Coach Malzahn over the years. Is that in big game situations, he does make some weird decisions and he doesn't always put it together like he should. That has been one of the complaints. But considering this new contract and the financial commitment, clearly they're married to this guy for a while. Absolutely. And it was almost the baseball analogy is a good one. And it was like Auburn threw two inside fastballs and Georgia looked silly and had no idea how to, how to handle it at the plate. And then Auburn decided, I'm going to hang a breaking ball and Georgia just knocked it out of the park. I mean, that, that's kind of what it felt like in this game. And ultimately, the first loss doesn't really matter for Georgia in, in the grand scheme of things because they, they're still going to a playoff and they're still going to get a chance to compete for a national championship. So, I mean, the end result is all that really matters. And, and you're right, and that is, that's going to be the complaint with, with Malzahn throughout his time at Auburn, however long he's able to stay in this job, which now is looking like it's going to be a long time. They've made that commitment to him because they've said, hey, you know what, you just beat the two, maybe the two best defensive minds in the country in Nick Saban and Kirby Smart. We need to recognize that you are really good at your job, and if we, even if we try to go find somebody on the open market, we'd pay them maybe, I don't know, $5 million a year, and we would be coming back to the same thing of, okay, can you beat Nick Saban, and can you get us to an SEC championship? And Gus Malzahn did that, and this wasn't just his first time doing this. I mean, there are very few guys on this planet, very few people who could beat Nick Saban multiple times. And Auburn has one of those guys. So, I mean, I get it from that standpoint. I understand the criticisms. And, you know, this is just going to be you take the good with the bad with Malzahn and hope that he's able to put a lot more teams together like this. All right, very quickly before we move on to the next segment, Auburn, of course, is disappointed going to the Peach Bowl, New Year's Six Bowls game, playing UCF. What a game that was against Memphis we saw this past Saturday. I hope you watched that one, but... 
I think UCF either wins that game in a thriller or Auburn blows them off the field by four touchdowns. You have to worry about motivation for both teams. Does Auburn really want to be there? What is UCF going to do knowing that Scott Frost has one foot in Lincoln right now? So what do you say? UCF wins a thriller or Auburn blows them off the field? You know, I'm actually I'm getting ready to write a, a story about how this is maybe the most Plug alert, plug alert, plug alert. Plug alert, yeah. Future plug alert, so not past plug alert, but future. Um, we need to get a drop for that. We'll get a drop for that one day. Don't <laughs> just be completely arrogant and, yeah, whatever. But, I mean, I think this game is really, really tough to predict because, like you just said, is Auburn going to show up for this? I mean, look at the past month that Auburn has just had. You had a home game against, against Georgia where your season's on the line. You get that huge emotional victory against number one. Oh, then, by the way, Alabama comes into town a couple weeks later, number one. You get an even bigger emotional victory in the Iron Bowl. And then you play in the SEC championship, and it all falls apart. Do you, do you come out ready to go and excited to play UCF in a Peach Bowl when you could have been playing for a national championship? I don't know. I honestly don't know what this next month is going to be like for this team, if they're going to take this seriously, if those guys who are banged up are going to want to come back and play in this. We still don't know what's going to happen with Carryon Johnson. I mean, if he's a guy that's maybe looking at the NFL and, you know, what his options are, that's an entirely different subject. So there are a lot of question marks with Auburn. And then, you know, by the way, there's the fact that, like I said before, they're 3-3 three and three away from home. We don't know how Auburn's going to show up on a neutral site. And this is a UCF team that, say what you want about their defense, they don't really tackle very much. They score a ton of points. Scott Frost lights up the scoreboard. He's going to be doing two jobs, really three jobs, considering that that Nebraska job is probably more like two, considering it's recruiting season right now. So we don't know what we're going to see from UCF. We think we're going to see a high-powered offense, and this is going to be their biggest game, of course, uh, well, maybe since the Blake Bortles era, but maybe their biggest game in program history. I don't know what to expect from this game. I kind of tend to think this is going to be one of those thrilling games. I was thinking originally this could be an Auburn blowout, but – the more and more I think about it, I don't know if Auburn's going to show up ready to roll for this one. This feels like Alabama and Utah. This feels like Oklahoma, Boise State, which leads me to believe I think I'm going with the Knights in this one. Give me the Knights. I, yeah, I'm on record right now. Come at me, Auburn fans. If you're listening, then you know the South loves football. You know what the South also loves? Crystal Burgers. That's right. Crystal, home of the classic Crystal Burger. They're a Saturday Down South sponsor this year, and they are ready to hook you up for your bold game, Tailgate. The classic Crystal, the one you grew up with, the one you loved in college way after midnight, it is still only 79 cents. All day, every day, as many as you want, 79 cents a pop. Best of all, Crystal is taking care of our readers and listeners this fall. Just text SDS. To 37793 right now. SDS to 37793. You're going to get two free crystals and a drink to go with it. So you got free crystals. You've got 79 cent crystals. I guarantee if you come to your tailgate with a steamer pack full of crystals, you're going to be treated like the hero that you are. Stop by your local crystal today. Okay, Connor, let's go ahead and move on. Of course, we have the college football playoff that is set in stone. Not a whole lot of surprises. Of course, everyone complained about the number four team, whether it's going to be Alabama, is it Ohio State? Ultimately, the Crimson Tide got the vote from the committee. 
as far as I see it, this is just one of those years where there's four spots and only three teams that truly earn their way in. Just a simple question. Do you think the committee got the top four correct, both in terms of the teams they chose and the way they were seated? Absolutely. This was this was the, the decision the committee was going to make, um, whether or not Ohio State was able to win the Big Ten championship. I, I've been saying for, for weeks and weeks and weeks, and people refuse to listen, the Iowa loss was too much. What did Kirby Hokut say as soon as he was asked a question about Ohio State right after the rankings were announced? The Iowa loss was too damaging for Ohio State. It was more damaging as a second loss. If this was just one loss, maybe it's a different. It's, we're having a different discussion. But all those quality wins that Ohio State had, which, by the way, let's let's throw something out there because there's you know the, everybody's talking about the fact that Alabama doesn't have any quality wins, and Ohio State had three bit wins that were better than than Alabama's. All right, you realize that Ohio State beat five bowl teams and Alabama beat seven? So it's not like Alabama was playing Tennessee every week. I mean, Alabama actually had some quality opponents. They just didn't have those bevy of top five, top ten, top 15 opponents. I mean, they didn't have any. And so you, But you go back to the fact that the, the selection committee does not like when a team gets blown out. If a team gets blown out in the regular season, that means they can get blown out in the postseason. They want a good game. There's a reason that Penn State did not make the field last year as a conference champion that ran the table and beat two top ten teams en route to doing that. And that was because they got killed by Michigan at, at, in the final weekend of September. The committee said, we're going to take that second loss. If it's a blowout like that, we can't have you in. It didn't matter that Ohio State won, won out and beat a really good Wisconsin team in the Big Ten Championship. Alabama still had enough quality wins to be able to get by. And, oh, by the way, only one loss. We still haven't had a two-loss team in the field. Alabama was going to be the choice. People can complain about Ohio State all they want, but the reality was Alabama was, was never not going to get this thing no matter what Ohio State did on Saturday night. Yeah, I wrote the column Saturday night. Needless to say, not a very popular one with our readership, but I said that Alabama did not deserve to get into the college football playoff. Now, I didn't say they shouldn't go, but they didn't deserve it. And again, this right. was one of those funky seasons where there was only three teams that really, you could say unequivocally, earned the way in, and Alabama didn't. Because, you know, what, what's Alabama's best win this year? Probably LSU or Mississippi State? Or, okay, they beat Texas A&M? Those teams have 12 losses among them. So they just don't have that win where you could say, look, they beat so-and-so at such-and-such place by this score. They deserve it. So the eye test, of course. I mean, I've had Alabama atop my rankings all season long. I picked him to win the West. I picked him to win the SEC. I picked him to go to the college football playoff. Trust me, I'm fine with Alabama being in because that's the one of the four teams I picked in the preseason to make the playoff that actually got there. But I just don't like the fact that they didn't earn it. Now, how much of that is their fault? Not much. I mean... The Florida State win was supposed to be the big one. We know what happened to Florida State this year. The LSU win would look a lot better if the Bayou Bengals hadn't choked one away on homecoming to Troy. The Mississippi State win could have looked better if the Bulldogs didn't lay an egg, sorry for the pun, in the Egg Bowl. So it's not really Alabama's fault, but the Tide didn't earn their way in. So it's just one of those situations where no one's going to be happy especially in the Midwest, but I think this was a pretty gutsy call by the committee. And I've been telling you that politics have a lot to do with this, but the Big Ten champ has not made the playoff two years in a row now. And the Big Ten carries a lot of weight. And Commissioner Jim Delaney carries a lot of weight. 
this was clearly the committee trying to find the best four teams, not necessarily the most four deserving. So I think they do deserve some credit for making a tough call. You have three programs in Clemson and Georgia and and Alabama that are all pretty near each other geographically. They're threatening to maybe turn off some television sets and hurt some ratings, but they wanted the best four teams. I think they got the best four teams. My only hope is that this does not create some momentum for an eight-team playoff. Please, let's not do that. An extra round is not going to solve all the problems. If you complain from the third, the fourth, and the fifth team, you're going to complain the seventh and the eighth and the ninth team. Because if you had an eight-team playoff this year, who are you advocating for? You know, Auburn, are they going to go to the playoff 10-3, and three, as you said, 3-3 three and three away from home? You're going to get USC into the playoff? Yeah, they're the Pac-12 champ, but not a very impressive season. Penn State could potentially get into the playoff. Didn't get anywhere near the Big Ten title game. Miami, you're going to advocate Miami getting into playoff after what they just did in the ACC title game? You just have more and more flaws and more and more teams in the conversation. Adding another round is not the answer here. I know it can be frustrating getting to four, but there's no way you expand it to eight, and that makes things better automatically. We actually agree on that, and I I said – this is the perfect year to show you why a 14 playoff makes more sense than an 18 playoff. And I understand if you're, maybe UCF is the only team that would really, really have a strong point about an 18 playoff and what it could do for their season. The fact that they ran the table, didn't have any losses, did exactly what they could have on their schedule, and they're not going to have a chance to play for a national champion, a national championship. They're the only team, in my opinion, that could really have sort of a a gripe, so to speak, about this because they actually did go out and schedule Power 5 opponents in the non-conference play, got an unfortunate break, the fact that Hurricane Irma canceled the Georgia Tech game. So that would be the only the only point I would make, but I still agree 100% that a four-team playoff is the way to go. It's funny, though, circling back to Alabama, if your Florida State Seminoles had just been a top 25 team, a nine-win team, an eight-win team, a team like LSU – I don't think this is a conversation right now. Probably not. I, I don't even think it was. It would have been a debate. And so, yeah, Alabama, you know, really did not have things work out. I mean, pretty much everything that could have went wrong for Alabama's schedule went wrong. And I said this in the middle of the season with you. I was like, when do we start talking about Alabama's strength of schedule? Because it's not good, and it's not going to be good for the rest of the way because of the fact that you had these teams that were supposed to at least be decent that are, that are just terrible. And they're gonna they're gonna hurt Alabama's resume more than way more than they're gonna help it. You know the 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 Tennessees and the Florida State. So I, I found it interesting that the committee was able to say, you know what, this is about what Ohio State did in Iowa City more than anything else. And that's what I kept coming back to. You just cannot get destroyed like that. Alabama would never get destroyed like that. And you know what, Alabama's gonna have a chance to play for a national title. So th- this. This dynamic now that we've created with the 14 playoff, I, I still think that the committee has been able to stick to its logic year in, year out. Um, I think we've learned a lot of things from this, having four years under our belts. I just hope that at this time next year, we are still, or I guess, you know, a week removed from this time next year, I hope we're still not talking about a potential two-loss team that has a blowout loss on its resume. It's not getting in. It's just not happening. Penn State didn't do it. Ohio State couldn't do it. Auburn could have done it, but Auburn didn't have a blowout second loss. And Auburn still had more top ten wins than anybody. So, I, Or would have potentially had more top ten wins than anybody. So I think I just hope that we've learned something from the playoff selection committee and what they've been able to do so far. 
and I hope that we can apply it to our logic moving forward. Yeah, Alabama, of course, the strength of schedule is pretty weak, but is that Alabama's fault? I mean, just like you said, the, the schedule just fell apart, and it really wasn't anything they could do about it. I mean, they handled their business. Yes, they got beat on the planes, but still, this is a pretty impressive 11-1 resume. And yeah, did they play some mediocre teams? Yeah, but you know what? They blew them all off the field. It's not like they had a narrow escape against Vandy. It's not like they were lucky to get away with a game against Ole Miss. But again, the Florida State situation happened. That was the number three team in America and a college football playoff contender when the season started. You got some unfortunate breaks with the crossover games in the East. You know, the third Saturday in October against Tennessee, that's supposed to be a marquee win. All of a sudden, that's the worst volunteers team we've seen in a generation. Then in another crossover matchup, you got Vanderbilt. Last year, they got Kentucky on a crossover matchup. So that's just sort of the unfortunate draw, the way it shaped out. They didn't get a Florida or a Georgia or a South Carolina or a team like that from the East. That might have been a more quality win. It just didn't happen that way. So all the Midwest folks and the Pac-12 folks, who, you know, the whole ain't played nobody argument, that was not the case. Alabama had a very, very respectable schedule. It's just that the teams they beat didn't play well the rest of the way. Detroit lost to South to LSU just really hurt the respectability there. And the same thing with Mississippi State going down to Ole Miss in the Egg Bowl. If those things don't happen, then Alabama's schedule looks a little better and it's easier to justify this move. But you know what? They're one of the top four teams in America. Did they earn their way in? No, I don't think they did. But I can't advocate for somebody else. Ohio State, sure, you won the Big Ten. Sure, you beat undefeated Wisconsin. But as you said, is Alabama going to Iowa City and giving up a 50-burger? I don't think so. And this argument, too, that conference champions need to be weighed heavily. Danny Cannell has been the biggest advocate for this, and it drives me absolutely My, my guy. Oh, your guy. I'm just, this is the Florida State bashing show. We haven't even really gotten <laughs> to Jimbo yet. We're going we're gonna to get to Jimbo, don't worry. No, I think, we're, I think we're out of time here. <laughs> but like Danny Cannell keeps saying that conference championships need to be weighed heavily, and that needs to be the determining factor. Ohio State won its conference championship, and Alabama didn't. So Ohio State and Alabama playing the same conference now? Is They're playing the same competition. They have common opponents. Uh, last time I checked, Ohio State lost a conference game to Iowa and was still able to play in its conference championship. Alabama loses a game to Auburn, and it can't make its conference championship. So we're not playing on the same playing field. Why are we all of a sudden making that accomplishment the same thing? It's not. It's ridiculous to think that they're going to be judged exactly the same way when they're not playing the same teams. That's not the way this thing works. You don't have an all-encompassing system that says, we're going to play the exact same schedule and this utopia world that people think that we live in where we can just anoint conference champions is ridiculous. Let's not make that the sole determining factor. Nick Saban's been a big proponent of that and potentially changing the schedule to help, to help there, there be more common opponents. He wants to be able to play each Power 5 team moving forward and to have you know, the one cupcake game. And I love it. I think that schedule would be great. And I think that schedule in the playoff era would do so much good compared to what we have right now. And while I love the nine-game conference schedule, and I think the ACC and SEC are way late to the party on that, I do think that we need to see these Power 5 teams play each other in different conferences more before bowl season. That's, what we, that's the point we need to get to in the playoff era. That was my, my big takeaway from this year that I want to see moving forward. But, yes, the selection committee got it right.
Yeah, in a perfect world, I suppose the Power Five conferences would get together and try to have some uniformity with the way they attack the schedule. Now, it's not always easy to do that. You got 14 teams in the ACC and 14 in the SEC, but then the Big 12 has 10 teams and then the Pac-12 has 12. And, you know, it's, it's tough to do that. But I would love to get to the point where every team at the Power Five level, you have 12 regular season games. Let's do a nine-game conference schedule. And then you have three out-of-conference games to consider. Let's do one from a Power Five conference, one from a group of five conference, and then have one FCS cupcake out there. You get a freebie, your walk-ons get some playing time, and you know what? The Mercers of the world get a chance to line their budgets and make everything work from an athletic perspective. I would be okay with that. Now, some SEC types are probably going to push back because they think their conference is stronger and deeper, and nine games is just even more of a death march than the eight games as it currently is. I suppose I can make that argument, but one day maybe we'll get to the point where there's some uniformity, but we're not at that point now. We're not at that point. Maybe we will be, and that would make it easier, but you know what? There's a lot of, this is just the way college football is. It's 20 pounds worth of stuff, and you're trying to put it into a 15-pound bag. It never truly fits, but at the end of the day, I think they got the four teams right for the playoff, and when this thing is all over in a month or so, whoever wins this national championship is going to be deserving. People love to complain and let's make it like basketball. Let's make it like the FCS. Why don't we have an 18 playoff or a 16 team playoff? Or you know what? Let's make it a 64 team playoff. But has anybody ever complained really with who the national championship it comes down to? Even in the BCS area, we had so much complaining about the BCS. But at what point was there a college football national champion where three quarters of the country said, eh, they shouldn't have won it? Pretty much every single time, the best team wins. So why do we feel the need to have such drastic change all the time? Yeah, I agree. And 14 games should be able to to determine a national champion. I mean, It's already too many, if you ask me. Right. They should be able to determine the the teams that are there. I mean, a national champion has to play 15 games. Like, we we don't think that's enough. We we need more all of a sudden. Like, we need need another weekend. We need to basically make this like the NFL. I... I don't necessarily agree with that premise, um, and I know people are going to continue to fight that. And yeah, it would be it would provide some entertainment, but I just don't think that watering down the regular season is worth it. We've t- we've talked about this ad nauseum, and I think that we're going to have a real we have two really good semifinal matchups. I mean, we're sitting here with a Clemson Auburn or Clemson Alabama, excuse me, Clemson Alabama rematch, and one that's going to generate a ton of hype, and we get dab over. We could dab over Saban again. I just think that this matchup is going to be tremendous. And, oh, by the way, Oklahoma and Georgia in the Rose Bowl, like, this is great stuff. I mean, we're going to have potentially the Heisman Trophy winner against maybe what's turning into the best defense in college football. I mean, these are tremendous matchups that we're going to watch and we're going to be on the edge of our seat the entire time for. And what's to say they're not going to be great down-to-the-wire games that are going to produce two teams that are absolutely worthy of making it to a national championship. You know, it wasn't that long ago when the college football regular season was 11 games, and then you played your bowl game, and that was it. There were 12 football games, and now we're basically getting – you have to win 15 or at least play 15 to be a national champion. That's 25% more football than we had a generation ago. That, that is an insane amount. I mean, that's the equivalent of the NFL moving from a 16-game regular season to a 20-game regular season. That is a lot of football for 19- and 20-year-old kids who, oh, by the way, they're student-athletes. Let's not, I can hear the snickers now from people listening, but that is what it is. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. So 
more football isn't really the answer. And that's one of the reasons why we love college football, because it's this finite product. And we wish we had more. But if we had more, it wouldn't be the same. Let's not make this college basketball. I have not watched a college basketball game from start to finish before the month of March in my adult life. There's no point. Does anybody remember who won the ACC tournament last year? Does anybody remember who won the Big 12 regular season title last year? Nobody. Because the only thing that matters is March Madness and the tournament. So let's not make it where the regular season is just jockeying for seeding. And then we'll find out the games that really matter in December and January. That's not the route we want to go down. So I know four is imperfect, but eight would be more imperfect and for all the wrong reasons. Well said. Agree with you 100%. Who are your picks for the playoff here? Are we are we making picks today? No, we're still too early for that. Still way too early for that. And I'm feeling too good about my picks from championship week, so I want to let those simmer for a little longer, if you know what I mean. All right, that's fair enough. Let's go ahead and move on to some individual accolades. Let's close out the podcast with the all-SEC team. First team, second team were just recently announced by the AP and you know what? I think they did an okay on the offensive side of the ball, did an okay job. But the first team defense in particular, I have a lot of gripes. Now, I was not a voter. This is the AP here. This is not the FWAA. I will vote for those teams. But there's not a lot of voters who determine the AP teams. I think there's only like 13 guys. So I think that this was a little bit of lazy voting, especially on defense. Guys with big names got on there because they're big names, not because they deserve to be there. First glance, what did you think about who made these lists? Well, I thought it was there were a few things about it that were that were pretty telling. I didn't necessarily have that big takeaway from from looking at the all defensive teams, but I mean, we're looking at a scenario in which Mississippi State had more first team all SEC defensive linemen than Alabama. I mean, I I'm gonna I, I can't think of a time when that's happened before because it's um, never happened. Yeah, because it's never happened. I mean, two guys that are absolutely deserving, in my opinion, because Montez Sweat has been terrific. Jeffrey Simmons has been a stud in Todd, in Todd Grantham's defense this year, and that Mississippi State defensive line has really, really stepped up this year. So um, I think that that was that was telling when I looked at the first team defense, and and really kind of says a lot about Alabama and all the issues that. People have questioned about the front seven. We knew that the front seven was going to have a bit of a regression coming into this year, but we kind of just chalked it up to, oh, well, it's Alabama and Nick Saban always finds a way. But it's actually, you know, a legitimate question mark about this team moving forward is do they have those studs on the front seven to be able to team as good as Clemson and then potentially as good as a Georgia or an Oklahoma? I don't know that right now. And I think just kind of the, the first team all the first uh, the first team all SEC group really um, kind of lend itself to believe that this isn't your typical Alabama team where you have, okay, it's all about the secondary, and the secondary is really the strongest unit uh, with that group. Um, you know, I think two deserving candidates that Alabama had, you know, in in the all, you know, defensive team. But I still just, I didn't really have that big takeaway of that there was this letdown on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, some household names made the list that probably shouldn't have, but I, I wasn't you know, necessarily disappointed with what the voters decided. Yeah, there were a couple of ones I thought they really got wrong. Just to review first-team defense for the AP, Jeff Holland from Auburn, of course. Montez Sweat and Jeffrey Simmons, who you talked about from Mississippi State, of course. But Deron Payne was one of the D tackles from Alabama. This guy had one sack this year, one-and-a-half tackles for loss. I know he was a five-star recruit. He was supposed to be the next great Alabama defensive lineman after all the guys that they've seen lead the program the last year or two. 
I'm sorry. I watched every snap Alabama played this year, and I can't recall a whole lot of times where I said, wow, look at Deron Payne. I mean, he's a good player. Don't get me wrong. I would love to have him on my team. But was that a first-team all-SEC performance from him? Absolutely not. Now, I can't give you five candidates off the top of my head who are better, but at no point did I say Deron Payne was dominating this year for Alabama. And look at the linebacking core. Roquan Smith, absolutely. Devin White, absolutely. But Rashawn Evans, again from Alabama, did he have a good year? Okay. I think he had five, five and a half tackles for loss or something. He was a good player. He's, he's going to be a good pro one day. But was that a first-team all-SEC performance? I don't think so. I bet I could find a couple of other guys who did pretty well. And then you've got Arden Key from LSU. I mean, is he probably the most talented defender in the SEC, probably, sure. He, I mean, he's going to be a top 10 draft pick. The, the measurables are off the charts. This guy played eight games. I think he had four sacks. He showed up in a couple of games. and others, he was clearly not at 100% and not giving full efforts. He gets in there on name recognition alone. Under no circumstances should Arden Key be a first-team all-SEC guy. Does he have the ability, the talent? Of course. But he didn't earn it. He didn't produce. He shouldn't be there. And the secondary, Greedy Williams from, from LSU, Greedy Williams, very, very good player. I think he had five picks to lead the conference. But Armani Watts from Texas A&M, he gets voted in as a corner. Um, I'm pretty sure he plays safety most of the time. I love Armani Watts. I think he should be there, but I don't understand the position. And then Minka Fitzpatrick and Ronnie Harrison from Alabama, both very, very good players. Uh, Minka Fitzpatrick did miss some time. Uh, he was a little bit ineffective with a hamstring injury, but am I going to argue with that? No, I'm not. But there were a couple of Alabama guys who I think got on there on name recognition alone, and Arden Key has no business being on the first team. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. That's how it usually works with these conference, with these all-conference teams, though. I mean – Offensive linemen, especially, it, it's name recognition. If you're on a preseason watch list and your team, you know, is is still in the hunt and your running game is good, chances are, if you're an offensive lineman, as long as you stay healthy, you're probably going to make that team if you got that preseason recognition. Because people don't sit there and break down offensive linemen for hours on end like they're Cole Kubelek or something like that. They just don't do it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I understand the fact that they went a little bit more name recognition, but it wasn't like there were these these guys on the second team that had these huge statistical seasons. So I think Ty went to the household names and maybe it wasn't necessarily a tie. And those, you know, lesser known guys, you know, the Charles Wrights of the world were a little bit um, underappreciated, but at the same time, you know, a lot of the guys in the second team played on really bad teams and that probably paid, played some sort of factor in it. And, you know, the, the Auburns and the Alabamas of the world and, LSU, they're going to get the benefit of the doubt because they're actually playing in relevant games for top 25 teams. And yeah, they might not have had the best statistical seasons, but you know they still make an, make an impact whenever they're on the field. And you know I, I sort of understand why that they would go, why they would go with the Arden Keys of the world, as long as there aren't those guys who are just total statistical anomalies that are being left off. I mean, yeah, Charles Wright led the SEC in sacks with 10, and yeah, that's that's a that's good number but it's not an earth-shattering number and yeah i mean you look at interceptions and no nobody had more than five and it, it, it wasn't like we had these guys who were all of a sudden you know breaking monster records and having these big seasons that were being put on the second team so all 
I'll give the voters the benefit of the doubt for that. But you know, I agree. It does. It does look like they gave some household names some the benefit of the doubt in a lot of those categories. Now, I can make a pretty strong argument for a couple of guys. The second team defensive tackle, one of them is Taven Bryant from Florida. I don't know how much, how quickly you gave up on Florida season this year, but that kid was an absolute monster. They were large stretches of several games where he was positively unblockable. He's got a fantastic story. He's from Wyoming. How he found himself to Gainesville, I have no idea. But this guy was positively dominant for large stretches of football this season. I didn't see that from De- from Deron Payne. Did I really know a whole lot about Taven and Brian coming into the season? No, I didn't. And, you know, I live fairly close to Gainesville, and I follow that program pretty closely. But this guy was incredible this season. He's a second-team selection, and, ta- and uh, first team is Deron Payne. So that's an easy flip-flop I could have made. And the linebacking core, on the second team, you have Josh Allen from Kentucky. You know what? It's not basketball season, so we're not paying as much attention to the Wildcats as we should. But Josh Allen is a sensational player. I would have had him ahead of Arden Key, no question about it. And Lorenzo Carter, another great player on defense. For Georgia, he didn't get consideration for the first team. Sky Moore for South Carolina, one of the best stories in the SEC this year. I would absolutely have Sky Moore as a first-team All-SEC guy at linebacker ahead of, say, Rashawn Evans from Alabama. Do I think he's more talented, going to be a better pro? No, but he had a better season. Missing all of last year with that neck injury, this guy is everywhere. He can rush the passer. He can drop into coverage. He has soft hands. He turns the football over. Sky Moore absolutely played first-team all-SEC caliber defense, but he's down for the second team because maybe he didn't quite have the name recognition. So there's a couple of changes I would make just off the top of my head. And I feel, again, and you talked about the offensive line as well. No question about it. I mean, have I ever played a snap of offensive line? Of course not. But Ross Perchbacker from Alabama is there. He was good this year. Was he truly amazing? No. Bradley Bozeman from Alabama, he's there as well. First team. Is he a good center? Of course he is. You're telling me he's a better player than Frank Ragnow at Arkansas? Probably not. So it's just a little bit lazy. I know that we ask a lot of these journalists and you know what? They've got a dozen columns to write and tape to transcribe. And oh, by the way, can you fill out your first team all SEC team? Let's just put the most name recognizable guys at the top. It's just too easy to do that. Maybe I'm just sour grapes here because some of the guys I would like to see make first team didn't. But mm, the voting process could be better as far as I'm concerned. Now, one thing, so we did talk about the household names, and one thing I'll give the voters credit for is they gave Benny Snell the nod on first team instead of Darius Geis and Nick Chubb. Totally deserving. Absolutely deserving. And Benny Snell finished the season on a tear. I mean, this is one of those where voters could have mailed it in and they could have had their minds made up weeks ago, and Darius Geis is the preseason All-American, and Nick Chubb is, everybody knows who Nick Chubb is by this point. But you know what? Snell was dominant down the stretch. I mean, the guy in his last five games, 777 rushing yards and 12 touchdowns. I mean, it, that's a Kentucky. This isn't like, you know, he's, he's running behind a, a dominant offensive line. And, you know, he has been tremendous on the stretch. And, yeah, Darius Geis wasn't exactly thrilled that he was left off first, uh, first team All-SEC. But, you know, he basically missed two games this year. And Snell had 700 rushing yard games. Like, this, this guy was tremendous. He was their offense for that team. And, yeah, maybe Nick Chubb was, would have been the, 
the more popular pick because of you know what he's been able to do in four years, and he's a great story with the comeback and how well that Georgia team has played this year. But you know what? He didn't deserve it, and he deserved to be on that second team. Is he a tremendous player? Absolutely. Is Darius Geis going to be the better pro? Uh, probably. But this is about what you've done this season, and I credit the voters for at least rewarding a guy like Benny Snell, who has been tremendous and so valuable for that offense. And they recognize that he was really, really good down the stretch. And I think, you know, for as much as we're going to give him grief for, for, you know, the other decisions that were made, at least that looks like one of the good ones. Well, I'm going to half agree with you, but half disagree because that's – I don't want to give the voters too much credit for Benny Snell. You want to know why? Because he's a running back. And, of course, he's a running back. He has very easy stats for people to recognize. And he finished second in the SEC in rushing with 1,318 yards – only two yards behind Carryon Johnson, the player of the year in the conference on the offensive side of the ball. So it's really easy to look at Benny Snell and say, okay, he's got 1,300-plus rushing yards. Darius Geis, 11.53. Nick Chubb, 11.75. Kentucky isn't as good as those teams in the offensive line, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, let's go ahead and vote in Benny Snell. That was an easy choice to make, if you ask me. I commend them for making the choice and not going with a Geis or a Chubb or a bigger name, but you can just look at the stats and say, this guy deserves it. If anything, that's that's advocating for me here because it's a lazy vote. You're only taking the stats into consideration. But you're not doing that at the defensive line with a guy like Deron Payne. And you're not doing that at linebacker with a guy like Arden Key. And you're not doing that along the offensive line maybe with a Ross Perschbacker. So, eh, again, the, the, you're leaning on the numbers. You're leaning on the names. It tells me that you've got you know so-and-so covers – the, the Razorbacks for the newspaper in Arkansas, he's paying attention to the Arkansas games, but how much is he truly watching Kentucky play? How much is he truly watching Auburn play? If you actually watch these games, and I like to think that I watch these games as closely as anybody who covers this league, you know who can play and who can't. You know who's worthy of first-team choice and who isn't. And Taven Bryan is worthy of a first-team choice. He doesn't have the stats to back it up, but just watch the damn games. That's a first-team All-SEC guy. Okay, but there's and then you can make the different argument. What about go to go to second team receiver where you had Christian Kirk making second team? And while I think Christian Kirk is tremendous, and I know you wrote the story about him early in the season about how he might be the he was probably the SEC's best all around player, probably. But they didn't look at the numbers with that one. Ryan Davis was had better numbers this year, and Ryan Davis for Auburn down the stretch. I don't think Auburn's playing for an SEC championship if not for the for the damage he was able to do against the Alabama secondary. I mean, he was absolutely phenomenal in that game, and he was Jared Stidham's favorite target down the stretch. So if we're going to talk about the voters just looking to the numbers, Ryan Davis actually had, should have had the, the nod in that. You know, he had more receiving yards. He had 18 more catches. And that big game against the Alabama secondary, I think, to me, said a lot about his performance, whereas – Christian Kirk only had one game, one 100-yard game against a Power 5 team this year. And, oh, by the way, that was Arkansas. So, I mean, you could, we can nitpick all we want. There are going to be snubs. There are going to be guys who we feel deserve more, you know, more, more credit than what they've been given. But it's an imperfect system, and when you only have 13 people voting on a committee, there are things that are going to be overlooked, and there are things that people like us who aren't voting are going to complain about. Yeah, Christian Kirk, again, probably gets in there on name recognition alone. And again, that's another flaw in the voting process because there's a lot of people who probably voted Christian Kirk a first or second team wide receiver, but then you had other people who voted him for the first team all-purpose guy. 
So sometimes you vote him in as an all-purpose. You leave him off as a receiver. Some guys vote him in as a receiver and an all-purpose guy. It's an imperfect system. You're absolutely right. DJ Chark is another guy who had a complaint to maybe be on this team. Now, he didn't catch a lot of passes, but the ones he caught really mattered and changed games. So Christian Kirk, he's a sensational player. Don't get me wrong, but a couple of quarterbacks he was playing with and the system didn't quite work this year. The numbers weren't really there. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, but should he be the all-purpose guy? Of course he should. What he's done in the return game alone justified that. But it's just the voting as a whole, it's imperfect. Part of it is the system itself, but part of it is the people in this line of work leaning too much on stats, leaning too much on name recognition, not paying attention close enough to the games, not being educated enough to grade offensive and defensive lines. Will we ever get there one day? Maybe, but today's not that day. No, they did get, you know, coach of the year, Kirby Smart, I think that's right on the money, the offensive and defensive players of the year. Those those were no-brainers. I mean, that those those aren't difficult decisions, in my opinion. You get on Johnson, uh, Roquan Smith, slam dunk. I mean, all we had to do was watch that SEC championship game and see how valuable those two guys were. In different ways, we saw how valuable they were. But nonetheless, I think those predictions or those those picks were at least right on the money. Yeah, I think so as well. I, I can make a small case for Will Muschamp as coach of the year. When I fill out my FWAA ballot, I'm actually going to go with Coach Muschamp. Just did more with less. Now, did Georgia have the better season? Of course. Is Curry Smart doing a sensational job? Absolutely. But I just love what Coach Muschamp did, getting this team to 8-4 and four and 5-1 and one in close games. You know what? That's coaching right there. His offense isn't great. His defense isn't great. But they're 8-4 and four going to a very good bowl game, 5-1 and one in one-score games. That's good coaching. So I want to give a little fist bump to Coach Muschamp, but zero complaint from me going to Coach Smart. Yeah, and that's going to be an interesting bowl game, too, to see how Muschamp stacks up against, against Jim Harbaugh about – Seeing what his his offense is going to be able to do against a Don Brown coach defense, uh, that, that's one of the more intriguing bowl game matchups that, that I'm looking forward to. Those could be some very fun press conferences before that one. <laughs> Absolutely. That's Connor O'Gara. Remember to follow him on Twitter at CJ O'Gara. You can also follow me at Saturday JC. And thank you for listening to the Saturday Down South podcast. Special thanks to our friends at WDAE in Tampa, as well as our sponsors, Ticket City and Crystal. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcast is located, and be sure to give the show a rating as well. My name is John Christ, and for all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.